Good morning, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. The second most popular hobby in the world, after gardening, is genealogy, or the study of one's family history. Although often undertaken as a personal journey, family history is an effective and interesting way to study the history of your community, state, nation, and indeed the world. We all have family members who were farmers and lawyers. Some were military heroes, while others were scoundrels. Studying one's family seems on the outset a narrow search. It is really the story of us all the history of humankind. Today we will explore a family who for generations have helped shape the history of their community, their state, and their nation. I'm joined in the studio by two guests, a brother-sister team who have an interesting family story to tell. Elizabeth Kennedy Blackstone is a native of Murray County, Tennessee. She's a graduate of Vanderbilt University and Washington and Lee Law School. Upon graduation, she spent some time pursuing environmental law at the legislative level and serving in the political arena before following in the family business line, news media. She's written for the Columbia Daily Herald, the Mount Pleasant Record, the Parsons News Leader, the Lawrence County Advocate, and the Nashville Banner. She's joined by her brother, Delk Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy is also a graduate of Vanderbilt University, but chose the University of Tennessee to pursue his law degree. For 24 years, he was assistant United States attorney before retiring in 2018. He is also the current owner of the Lawrence County Advocate. Good morning to you both. Welcome to History's Hook. Good morning, Tom. And also, um, I, I feel compelled to say that um, I'm continuing the family tradition here. By, I have a contract by WKRM, WKOM. Um, we're going to continue to serve uh, Middle Tennessee uh, in the media tradition of the family that we're going to talk about today. It's a, it's a long tradition. In history, and particularly in genealogy, we tend to see cycles. Names repeat, life decisions tend to repeat. I'm intrigued that you both have law degrees, uh, but we're both also well ensconced in the news media. Uh, And we'll talk about this uh, being a generational cycle with your family. For at least four generations now, you have that uh, combination of law and journalism. Tell me, Delk, why was the law, or why has the law and journalism been so important to you and your family for generations? Well, it's just, uh, it was just a tradition. I can't really tell you other than it just seemed like that's what I was supposed to do, you know. Uh, I I didn't, of course, I really didn't want to graduate and go to work either, so uh, law school seemed like the right thing. Um, James I. Finney, my great-grandfather, who bought the Daily Herald in in, uh, 1900, uh, he Actually, back in those days, you could read and just read the cases and then take the bar, which he did, and passed it. And the story is that he opened, a, you know, put out a shingle up in McMinnville. A fellow came in to see him who was charged with murder, and James I said, well, what about it? And he, the fellow goes, well, I did it. <laughs> and James I said, mm, not the business for me, and he got in the newspaper business. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see where he might switch gears at that point. It's hard to, hard to defend a guy like that. Elizabeth, how does a law degree help you in journalism? I think it, 
is very helpful. I, I want to add that it was it was important to Dad. Dilk said, you know, it just seemed like something we were supposed to do. It, it definitely did feel like something we were supposed to do. Uh, Daddy thought that if you were going to be involved in in public policy and, of course, the law laws uh, affect the way we all live and work, that uh, that it was a great background, no matter what you did with your career and so um and I felt that all along now daddy was better at it than I was he he was our in-house counsel with regard to you know libel suits et cetera, et cetera. he he did all that I've I've never had that kind of talent but uh and I think it's been really helpful to to both of us uh, I think it'll be enormously a great background for Delt going into the radio business uh, so and as I said earlier this is generational for your family. So as far back as three generations, your great-grandfather, also a lawyer, also in the media. Let's talk about him for a minute. So your great-grandfather, James I. Finney, uh, was born in 1877. He was really the first in your family, that I can tell, to engage in the newspaper business. What can you tell me about him? Uh, when and where was he born? Well, he was born in Louisiana uh, on a cotton plantation, or they may grow something else on the plantation. Cotton, cotton is what I always heard about. And for reasons I really don't know, he decided that he wanted to get out of Louisiana, came to Tennessee. As I said earlier, he read for the bar, uh, started practicing law, and then ended up, he and um, Hot Hastings, Walter Hastings, uh, somehow teamed up. And when you read the old stories about he and Walter Hastings, they're like, think about the super cool internet startup you know, thing you've never seen before, high tech. I mean, that's what newspaper was in those days. The first really good high-speed printing presses were just being developed, and and those guys were thought of like, you know, I, I mean, so think think of your favorite, you know, internet startup high-tech guy. That's, so they're using cutting-edge technology? Is that what you're... Uh, yeah, cutting-edge te- technology, inventing the, inventing this new business that had, they're here to forward just been, you know, all you could do is like print sheets and go sell them on the street corner. But I, we still had that old press when I was a boy. It was a flatbed press. It's it, it, Four pages at a time, but nobody, I mean, nobody had been able to print four pages at a time. Nobody had been able to print a whole run you know 10,000 copies in an hour and get them out on the street for it. it was all new it was exciting we're going to talk a little bit more about technology later in the conversation prior to getting in the media he was a military veteran uh records show that he was in the spanish-american war do you know much about his service in in that war i never heard much about it i, I actually found uh online one of his service records that shows him i'll give you a copy but he was a private in the first tennessee volunteer infantry during the Spanish-American War. Now, Tennessee fielded four regiments during that conflict. The first Tennessee, of which he was a part, was the only regiment that saw any action whatsoever. Uh, So we know a little bit about his regiment. I don't know a ton about uh, what he did specifically, but the uh, regiment uh, saw combat in the Philippine insurrection. Uh, It was made up, his regiment was made up of men from Nashville, Columbia, Lawrenceburg, Waverly, Clarksville, Big Sandy, and Springfield, though those areas made up the various companies that formed the regiment. Uh, patriotism and adventure, if you go by the newspapers, are sort of the two big motivating factors why these young men were, were joining up to fight. Uh, they mustered in at Cherokee Park in Nashville uh, and then were shipped and trained at Camp Merritt in San Francisco, California. 
uh, late in 1898, they were sent as reinforcements to hold the Philippine Islands that, had, that the United States had newly acquired from Spain, uh, fighting between American forces and those of Philippine leader Emilio Aguinaldo broke out in Manila in February of 1899, and the 1st Tennessee participated in that fighting. Colonel Smith, uh, the commander of the regiment, the oldest member of the regiment as well, became its very first combat casualty when he died from heat exhaustion. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Gracie Childers assumed command and served with distinction during the remainder of the 1st Tennessee's time in the Philippines. The regiment took an important part in the capture of Iloilo, uh, which was the Philippines' second largest city. Uh, and with the outbreak of guerrilla warfare in the Philippines, the Tennessee troops, like other American soldiers, became frustrated with the hit-and-run tactics used by the Filipino insurgents. The first Tennessee suffered its only man killed in action during one of those skirmishes. The first returned to Tennessee to a hero's welcome. Many of the survivors used their military experience to advance in civilian life, including your great-grandfather who began to read the law, as you mentioned. Elizabeth, explain a little bit about what that means. What does it mean to read the law? Well, of course, that's before my time, Tom, but I think that Del, um was getting into that, that you, you know, you didn't go to law school. You you read for the law, you, and you, if you were able to pass muster on the state requirements, and Granddad was certainly capable, um, then you, then they called you lawyer. And uh, I wanted to follow up on what Delk was saying about their, I don't know, sort of and of course, I and I think Delk also. I I hear family history through the lens of my mother's description, and so just like as I'm, I'm sure I got a you know a biased view of all this. But mother always said that Granddaddy had kind of a panache about him, and that he you're talking about great granddaddy, great granddaddy. Right? I'm sorry, great granddaddy, and that he he um you know he did buy the paper, and they he did everything that Delk said, but he also after a while, went back to the Tennessean where he was uh, editor for quite a while, and he he rode the train from Cullioca up to the to the paper. Commuted every day. Every day, and, and a, on the track that's still there that we can't commute on. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. And uh, he wrote book reviews, and he and you know it's hard to take in that books and newspapers were so sought after. There, that was you know. No internet. That was that was the news, and that was people hung on his um, opinions about the books. And yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the newspaper was king in those days. There was no radio, no television. Newspaper was the only mass communication thing out there, and it was you know they, they were rock stars. He he jumped into the newspaper business almost immediately after after uh, passing the bar exam. Uh, first working for the Nashville Tennessean in 1904, he stayed there just six months before he became editor of the Columbia Daily Herald. So in 1904, he sort of takes over the newspaper here. Um, we're going to stop right here and take our very first break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about his newspaper career and how your family gets involved in media. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're telling a compelling story about the Kennedy family, who are uh, a media family that had been involved with media in Tennessee for several generations. Uh, we have in the studio Delk Kennedy uh, and his sister Elizabeth Blackstone talking about their family. Um, so we're talking about your great-grandfather, James I. 
uh, Kennedy, uh, we talked about Finney. him. I'm sorry, Finney, uh, who uh, uh, is admitted to the bar, jumps into the newspaper business, uh, comes to Columbia as the editor of the Columbia Daily Herald. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what the newspaper business was like at the time. What was the specific role of the editor? Are, are we talking a newspaper having a dozen people working for it, or is it a much smaller operation no, at look, this time? Sister's got a picture with her, and it was down uh, at the building that we still own, 805 South Garden. And no, you just had, you know, four or five men in those days, uh, you know, a printer, uh, a job shop editor, uh, and uh, he and James I and Hot Hastings, um, they did it. But again, they were like internet startup, you know, superstar on the internet, uh, uh, what do they call them, uh, influencers on Instagram. I mean, they were cool. This was a new thing, newspaper and the the newspaper wasn't new, but the ability to print thousands of copies in an hour was new, and there was nothing else. And so they were they were the cool rock star dudes, you know. In the 19th century, the political parties had a great deal of influence on the news. Uh, I know in the 19th century, certainly many of the newspapers were actually run by the various political parties. So you might, in the 19th century, have a Democratic paper, and you'd have a Whig paper, and they would publish their opposing views, and there was this constant battle in print and, going and, on. And by the turn of the 20th century, is it the same way? Oh, yeah, it's still there, but gosh, you talk about a storied history my family never got into. Well, they did too, but I mean, in those days, it really wasn't uncommon for a couple of editors to have a duel or, uh, you know, shoot each other on the street. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was different. You know? Edward Carmack <laughs> yeah, is a yeah. great example of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, state yeah. senator and newspaper man who yeah. was killed for his... Carmack Boulevard, running right through the middle of Columbia, Tennessee. Yes, right, sir. Right, you'll find his statue on the grounds of the Tennessee State Capitol. Yeah. Um, uh, James spent 22 years with the Herald, establishing a reputation as a writer and commentator on life in Tennessee. Have you read any of his work? Sister has, I know. I've read some. I have, but I, I expect that you know more about it than I do at this point, Tom. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm, yeah, well, I'm fascinated by him. Well, you know, the tradition, I mean, Sister's a, you know, she's a far left nut, and, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a Trump fan. Um, and but uh, James, I have I don't know what party he's in, but in his day he was a progressive liberal. Uh, he was very much for public schools, but in a much different context. There were no public schools. He was just led the fight to have public schools, to have education available for everybody, as opposed to no education available at all, other than if you could afford a private tutor or school. And he was very much uh, for prohibition, which I don't quite understand. But that was a liberal cause of the day. He, he was a Democrat. So um, I, I've spent a little time reading some of, of his editorials. And, and Democrats his, in those days were not thought of as liberals. Republicans were thought of as liberals. So I don't understand that. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Uh, so his editorials against anti-evolution law in 1925 are still considered models of clear, concise comment on one of the most emotional issues in the state's history. And he generally is credited with helping leaders of the prohibition movement drive saloons out. Uh, from the state and rid state government of the influence of the liquor interests, and that was that was a a program that was near and dear to his heart. He wrote a lot about prohibition in the, in the country. I wanted to read a little excerpt that I got from the newspaper. This is in 1915. His editorials, by the way, are lengthy. They are almost a whole page sometimes. He, wow. He's spending a lot of time. And in each of his editorials, he would deal with a, a, maybe five or six different issues. And and he's really 
he's really picking him apart. He, he, he's an excellent writer, in my opinion. But here, here's one on the party vote, it's called. He writes, that a m- large majority of the Democrats in the National House of Representatives should have voted against the National Prohibition Amendment, while almost two-thirds of the Republicans and progress- progressives voted for it, will cause little surprise, though it is, it is to be regretted. But it must be remembered that in the present House, more than two-thirds Democratic, the great centers of population like New York City, Chicago, and the states along the eastern coast, where there is little prohibition sentiment, are very largely represented by Democrats. They voted almost solidly against prohibition. The great bulk of the Democratic vote for the prohibition amendment came from the states of the South. Seven of the eight Democrats of Tennessee voted for the amendment, and the other would have so voted had he been present. It is deeply to be regretted that a larger percentage of the Democrats did not vote for this beneficent measure. Unquestionably, on the showing made, the Republicans gather, uh, rather have the advantage of us on this moral issue. It is true that the Democratic leaders in the House and the administration, except Secretaries Bryan and Daniels, have no encouragement to the Prohibition Amendment. So yeah. wow. he, he, he digs in pretty deeply on, on this issue, and he's pretty influential. Like you said, he, he, I think he's using this organ, this voice uh, in, in print to influence people, on certainly on the local level, but he's, he's really gaining ground on a national level as well. well definitely, and, and my sister and I, were, you know, we were raised with that. We, we, we know the, the power of media, the power to do good. Uh, I'm not sure that prohibition was such a good thing, but, uh, James, I thought it was a good thing at the time. He goes on to talk in that same editorial from a local perspective. It's Christmas time when he's writing this editorial and how this is the first year in 1915. Uh, the bars have been shut down in Murray County, and he's, he, this is the, one of the very first years in his memory that he didn't see drunk men you know, celebrating Christmas with a bottle. And so he, he goes into great detail to sort of illustrate his point and what it means on a local level and on a societal level as well. I, I guess they were home beating their wives. You know, I don't know. <laughs> oh, Dale. In, in, in 1912, James Finney was elected president of the Tennessee Press Association. What, what do you think, Elizabeth, what do you think that tells us about him? Well, all three of these men, our great-grandfather, our grandfather, and my father, our father, <laughs> were, um, were leaders in the statewide industry. And um, I, yeah, I they, think they, that, that was their natural... Yeah, all, all three were presidents of TPA at one time or the other, and they're all three uh, Tennessee Newspaper Hall of Famers. Did, well, d- Daddy, Daddy's not eligible yet, but I expect that's coming. I, yeah. I expect uh, that's right. Uh, do you think, did it have an impact on the Herald? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, among their peers. I mean, now, this is, I, I speak to my lifetime. I don't know about that. Uh, among their peers, Granddaddy and Daddy were um, – very respected and in those days in the er, mid to late 20th century uh, there were only about 10 or 12 family families across the state that that owned the daily newspapers and and of those 10 to 12 daddy and a, and a couple of others and and granddaddy definitely granddaddy were um people that were looked to for leadership about what the industry should be. Yeah, I mean, so, all three, James I, John Finney, and, and Sam Kennedy had outsized influence, uh, and they used it for the good of Columbia, for the good of the state of Tennessee, but uh, they all networked uh, with other uh, newspapers across the state and across the country, and they had influence there, and so their power was amplified by these connections, and they were good at it, and they used them. 
which is fascinating that you're talking about a relatively small body of people who are controlling a very large message. Uh, you're saying about a dozen or so families that own most of these these newspapers. Oh, yeah. But I, mean, but I would, you know, I we spoke about this. I would argue that they were a, gr- a small group of darn responsible people in that they answered to their they each lived and worked in the community that they served and so they had to they had to go to church with and eat lunch with the people that they were talking about so they couldn't they couldn't just say or do whatever they wanted to do because they had to answer to a constituency community checks and balances right Uh, exactly very very true sister very true in 1926 he gave up his position to his son john wesley finney and he himself became the editor-in-chief of the Nashville Tennessean, where he became a close personal advisor to Governor Austin P. Yeah, uh, two, two stents at the Tennessean. Yeah. What, do, what do we know about their friendship uh, between Austin P. And, and James Finney? Much of anything. I, I really don't know any details, although I think it's back to just what we've talked about, this, this, what was progressive, progressivism of the time. They shared that vision. And in two particular areas, one was public education, as you mentioned earlier. He was a big proponent of expanding public education. The other is the public road system, expanding the public road system. The two of them worked worked jointly on, I had not, on those projects. I had not heard that before, but it does not surprise me a bit. Consistent. I, I have heard that. And, I, you know, I, I think that um, gr- Granddaddy and, well, all of them were all about the facts, Specify right? which granddad, sister. Sorry, I was speaking of... Granddaddy. Granddaddy. John, 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 Finney. John, John W. Finney. Uh, I think they really, ca- well, and of course, great granddaddy, you spoke of his um, stand on evolution. Uh, you know, science, facts. Yeah, I that mean, doesn't they, surprise me a no, bit. No, not, a, uh, not and, a bit. I mean, he would be right there on global warming that I think's fruits and nuts, you know, but he, <laughs> he would be right there on it today. He would, yes, he when, would go with science. <laughs> when James I. died in 1933, his obituary ran in newspapers all across the country. I found— I thought it was 30, uh, but in 33? 33, in newspapers in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Salt Lake City, Utah, Tallahassee, Florida, and, and other cities across the country. He was well-regarded. Yeah, it was, um, uh, he was young, 50. Yep. Uh, when uh, I mentioned that when he died, his son, John Wesley, took over. Uh, he was born in 1900 and followed in his father's media footsteps— We're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we'll talk about him. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today I have in the studio with me uh, Elizabeth Blackstone and her uh, brother Delk Kennedy, who are here to talk about uh, their family history, a little bit about genealogy and um, a most impressive media family, uh, maybe the most impressive media family in Tennessee. Uh, we've spent a fair amount of time on your great-grandfather. He passed away and passed the mantle on to his son, John Wesley Finney. Uh, a whole different personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he was born, John Wesley was born in 1900 and followed in his father's footsteps, taking over the Columbia Daily Herald in 1926. He also father, uh, followed his father in his military career. What do we know about uh, uh, John Finney and his Absolutely military career? Absolutely fascinating. Of course, I'm older than my sister, and he died when I was eight. So Elizabeth, I don't think, really had the opportunity to spend the time or remembers the things that he told me that I was able to carry on but one of the things that just fascinated me he was born in 1900 
and he enlisted in the Navy, enlisted in, uh, in the First World War. And it was on the North Atlantic route. Don't know if he was on a, what kind of ship he was on, but he was in the U.S. Navy. The pictures of him in his Navy uniform. And uh, he would tell me about being up on the top of the ship at the rail and watching the German torpedo just going right by the bow. And, of course, at the time, I just thought that was peachy king cool, great story, Granddad. But now that I think about it, it's a whole different perspective. Sure. And he's just a kid, right, when America yeah, 18, gets in, 18, 17 or 18 yeah, years born old? Born 1900, 1918, just a, a, a boy, you know. But his lifespans, which means he's still fairly young during World War II. And, and that's so even more fascinating. What's his role in World War II? He, he got out of the Navy. He always had a huge spot in his heart for the Navy, and that manifests itself in a number of ways over the years. But during the Second War, the, the, the military was just looking for people who had managerial experience. They needed help. And so uh, he was the managing editor of the Daily Herald, and they offered him a commission. I commissioned him a major in the United States Marines, and he and Mama and my grandmother moved to Fort Bend, Indiana for three years, I think, where he commanded a training unit there. And my mother graduated. She went to high school in Fort Bend. I think she graduated high school in Fort Bend, Indiana, during the war. Interesting. Did, did he jump right into the newspaper business, or was he educated? Did he go to college? Oh, oh yeah, yes. Yeah, he was very well educated. He, he, he went to the much. University I mean, of Tennessee. He didn't practice his, He was not... He was not the intellectual the others were, I'll put it that way, or didn't try to be. You tell about that, Elizabeth. Well, he went to the University of Tennessee, and as did his brother Jim. And where did Lewis go? I'm not sure There where were Lewis three went. Finney I think probably. boys. And a of course, Jim, Jim Finney played. That's another story. I mean, he was a, 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 an SEC big-time football star. Like All-American, was he not in yeah. – in tackled uh, Tony Holmes on the one-yard line and beat five. Alabama in 1932. Yeah. Oh, 32. 32-5, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but, that's uh, that's you know, a whole other story. Granddad loves sports, though, and he was good at it and, you know. The Finney brothers were fun-loving and loved this community. Oh, Granddaddy was – he would – and not like, you know, the intellectual, wordy James I. He, he – brevity. Uh, and he had a big, loud voice, and uh, uh, I remember – Hiram Barr owned the Oldsmobile dealership, and he took me down there to buy a new car. He said, Hiram, said, you give me a car with the biggest motor you got. <laughs> and <laughs> off we went. He was a widower. My grandmother died in 62. He loaded me up, what, seven years old, took me to New York. Uh, that's when the Playboy Club was considered like a club. He took me out to eat at the Playboy Club, and then he took me to see the Rockettes. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah, we just had a ball. He was wide he, open. He, yes, <laughs> and yes. he liked to drink, not unlike his granddad, unlike his daddy. He liked his he liked his whiskey. <laughs> and he, he graduated from UT uh, and decided to per, uh, pursue a career other than the newspaper business. At the beginning, he I didn't be, know that. He, I didn't he, know that either. He taught in public schools for a couple of years. I did not know that. Well, I uh, guess it doesn't surprise me though. I mean, um, gosh, he was laser focused on. On what would become Columbia State. Oh God, um, that was his passion. That's he he worked night and day on that, uh, and and saw it. Uh, he didn't see it, but he saw it announced before he died and, in '65. Yeah. And I think "saw it" is a great way to lead into that conversation. I mean, he saw it. He saw what a community college could mean to this area, and uh, it's was, certainly that was, come that, true. That and was it, his night and day. That was his passion. And, and that was a brand new concept. Oh, yeah. First community college in the country. Exactly right. So so he's sort of on the forward thinking. Oh, I definitely very think so. In terms of and education. And mother was so proud of that. And 
and well, you know the story that um, the, I knew, pre- the I Lady knew Bird it, and the I, president came in to and, dedicate. And stay it. tuned. A new and refurbished uh, John W. Finney, John W. Finney Library will be open in the spring at Columbia State Community College. And we're excited about that. So I, I think his background in education sort of is a theme throughout his life. One of the things I find interesting about him, besides having the Daily Herald, he was also the editor of the weekly newspaper here, the Murray Democrat. Correct. What was the purpose of that paper, and how did it differ from the Herald? Do you have any, it any really idea? It really didn't. Uh, it arose as a competitor, I think, maybe in the 40s during that period of time when Grande was out of town. And I'm not going to mention the family name, but I think there was always bad blood. Uh, the, who started the competitor? And uh, at the end of the day, the, the Herald prevailed. And what you did back then is you just sort of bought the competitor out and you just folded it in. T- it was just a throwaway. Okay. You know? I mean, after it after had a long history here. It interestingly, did. It as did. a as a weekly newspaper, and it had some real depth to it. It did pick up. It seems it picked up a lot of other stories from national other national yeah. news outlets. It, it uh, did, and Daddy finally, you know. Forty years later, we were still doing two newspapers, and I think Daddy's finally the one who killed it. Just said, you know, there's no sense in this. Going back to his educational background, John served on the White House Conference on Education in 1955. Was appointed to the Tennessee State Board of Education in 1962. Uh, what role did he have? Let's go back to uh, where we began with, with this topic. What role did he have with the opening of Columbia State Community College? What kind of influence did he have? I just remember he level? used his bully pulpit at the Herald and those connections we're talking about statewide and nationwide, you know, uh, acquaintances in the media business to lobby with every ounce of his being for Columbia State. And, uh, and that was his I, I think he just really that was his passion night and day that's what I was eight years old I remember that he was just laser focused on that and, and again that was cutting edge thinking for the time in education yes. Columbia State Community College was the very first community college in in the country and, and some he was dead but some may remember Lyndon Johnson coming to Columbia to dedicate uh, the, the groundbreaking. Uh, it was actually Lady Bird who was invited to come, and uh, he cleared his schedule and came <laughs> she along. She brought him oh, along with him. I, and with Daddy, him. Daddy, I think this is true. I know he was along. I think he went, but flew to Washington, flew down with Lyndon and Lady Bird on Air Daddy Force One. Daddy was on Air Force One. Oh, and I, I, I think of this today. Daddy brings home these souvenir ashtrays from uh, Air Force One, and Elizabeth and I were just, we thought that was, you know, look oh, what we got. Oh, oh boy. boy you know, we so ashtrays excited. from you know, Air Force One. Oh, <laughs> but I think Granddaddy really, I mean, I, I, Delk's right, I was five when he, died but i can i can still remember him saying things like you know not everybody has to go to harvard we we need we need people who know how he to believe in do education, things but he was not he never aspired to be an intellectual like daddy or uh, um, james i you he, know he just thought it was so important to to move this community forward to have you know people in the medical field and not necessarily doctors you know all these different jobs all these different things. and he, he didn't see any reason why we should send our young people you know off to learn how to do these things he, he i remember something he was he was he was you know he used the word progress a lot he'd say you know the uh oh, our motto all old south right. what is it new south progress old south charm he would say you know only forward we can only go f- it's I don't, I don't forward that. What he, oh i do i the other, totally the other do. thing that he loved was the tennessee walking horse the five-gated horse and um but not the walking horse we see today uh, uh, 
the, the old time plantation right. horse not with the a, high with stepping a, with a natural gait and uh he's when he went he went to school at Kalioka school they lived on Valley Creek Road right there at Kalioka about three miles to school the school is still where it is today and my granddaddy 12 years old rode his pony to school every day and they had a uh, a stable at the school where a lot of kids rode their ponies to school. Well, the 1912 tornado came through, and I got the story from both Granddaddy and Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim was seven. He was at home with his mama, and it was about the time for Granddaddy to be coming home from school when the tornado hit and went right down Valley Creek Road, the 1912 wow. tornado. And Uncle Jim sat, was holding my mama's skirts, and she was looking out the window, and the tornado was going by, and she was going, John, John, you know, is John okay? And Granddaddy used to always tell about it. He said he just trotted his pony into a barn along the way and watched the tornado go by and never had so much fun in his life. He died. <laughs> he died. Right, he rode his horse every day, and he died in 65 riding his On horse. On the horse. On the horse. Which is another theme in your family is this idea of agriculture. You mentioned James I commuted to Nashville every day because he loved the farm. He loved that aspect of his life. And but that's, Sam Delk Kennedy Jr. sitting to my right did pretty much the same thing. As know? is Sam Delk Kennedy the uh, third, and the fourth will tell you all about Daddy's Cows. Yeah, Which I think is a wonderful theme, and we'll talk about your father here in, in just a minute, but I think it's a theme throughout your family, this grounding, I think— you know this I, this common sense this this grounding that they Penn have Warren, an education. a place to come to yes we are nothing without a place, place to, come to come to and we think that about us and about other Marie people County. as well <laughs> yeah so so john w dies suddenly in 1965 what happens to the columbia daily herald at that point well yes. go go, go girl go well i was gonna say uh you know it's kind of chaos it came out of it sprung from nowhere and yet mother would Again, for t- just telling you what my mother told me, which is that he that that Granddad had absolute faith in his son-in-law, even though they didn't agree on politics all the time. He they he he felt his potential to lead, and Daddy had always been very interested in um, the community yeah. as a whole. Well, it was sort of a chaotic situation. Uh, Hot Hastings died within a week of Granddaddy. So, gosh, I didn't realize it was yeah, a, just a week. Yeah, within wow. a week. And of course, he had been James I's partner, and James I had been dead. You know what? Forty years at this point. And so, all of a sudden, your top leadership, you know, dies within a week. At that point, both the Hastings families and the Finney families uh, owned the paper. I believe Mr. Hastings had two children, and on our side, it was my granddaddy John. Lewis Finney and Jim Finney. So you had it was divided among five different families at that point. And there was really nobody else poised to take over. Daddy was a 35-year-old attorney and the district attorney for Murray County and the 22nd Judicial District. And so the family met, and at 35, he took over as publisher and editor of, of the Daily Herald. We're going to spend more time on your father after this break. Uh, we'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. 
So we've talked about your great-grandfather. We've talked about your grandfather. I want to spend a little time on your father now, a person who I had the privilege to know uh, in his in his later life. So when your grandfather passes away suddenly in 1965, uh, your father ends up taking over the Daily Herald, who's not a son but a son-in-law. Uh, did that cause a problem? None I don't that, think so. I, none that we're no. aware of. He was just the only person in the family who was – poised to do kind of it the obvious time. choice everybody else either was going in another direction too young too old you know where where did your father grow up grew up in kettle mills tennessee where my son sam kennedy the third lives now on the same farm where my dad and my grandmother grew up and and in case the listeners just don't know where kettle mills tennessee is that's that's far west murray county out towards the natchez trace between it, hampshire and williamsport it's a beautiful sort of bowl. Oh, so oh yeah, uh, right on the right on the Duck River. It's a, a lovely area. What kind of a student was he growing up? Daddy, out of eight children, all eight were the valedictorians of their respective classes. Daddy graduated from high school when he was sixteen because it was a one-room school. It, when you passed the material for a grade, you got advanced. So he was out graduated of the valedictorian uh, at the age of sixteen from Hampshire High. Being a member of the Church of Christ, a valedictorian, he got a full scholarship to David Lipscomb, and off he went. And he played basketball at David Lipscomb. And ended up uh, at um, uh, Cumberland over in Lebanon at the time. Uh, Is the name ever Cumberland, Elizabeth? Uh, Right, and also there was a stint at North Carolina State. Yeah, yeah, that was the Army. The Army tried to make an engineer out of him, didn't work. Uh, But um, ended up being a Hall of Fame basketball player over at Cumberland, uh, where he went to law school. Okay. In in those days, it was less common to to get scholarships than it is now. And he he, you know, oh, yeah, eight, yeah. seven brothers and sisters. He, oh, he, I mean, daddy, daddy, you know, he, he didn't he, have he, any college he, money. He, he grew up John Boy Walton. You know, I mean, it was depression. I mean, it was that's the way it was. And he always the thing about it is he complained about it all his life how t- hard times were. But when his eyes would shine when he would talk about the most fun oh. he ever had, it was back at Kettle Mills. You know, growing up. I hope his only surviving sister, his sister Frances, is, is listening right now because uh, it's all true. I mean, they, yeah. they were so happy. And for years, I wanted to move down there, and he was so injured by it that he would just he would shame me and Mary Susan and I from moving down there. And you can't do it. It's too far away. It's no fit life for children, blah, blah, blah. And then when my son, he got to live to see my son and his great-grandchildren move onto the farm where he grew up. And his eyes, I mean, he I was ecstatic. I have never ecstatic. seen a bigger smile on he Danny's face. He was ecstatic, you know, <laughs> and he got to live to see it, Yeah, He was born in 1926, so he was a young man when World War II got rolling. Very but young. But Lucky for us and for him, uh, he, uh, he actually um, uh, was about to graduate basic training on the day, on VJ Day, when the bomb was dropped on Japan. So uh, he was saved from being shipped overseas to Japan, which is where he was headed. One of his big stories that he would tell is that December seventh, forty one, that was my grandmother's birthday, and they were all four boys of military four age. Four boys, and they were all gathered around, um, and always, all you know, even then, always listening to the news on the radio. It was just the kind of family that they were. And and, and all uh, four, um, they knew immediately that Uncle Grady would be going. Three, and, two of them, three of them, no, two of them ended up overseas in combat. Uh, both survived, uh, uh, but it was. You know, Grandmama, we called her Granny Porter. Her name was Annie Porter Kennedy. We called her Granny Porter. Uh, you know, you got to think what a tough day that was for her. Absolutely. Uh, he 
studied the law. He became a lawyer, uh, and he progressed through his legal career. What what else did he do in the at, law? He was at the youngest. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, go, ahead. go, Elizabeth. I'm stealing all your thunder. He was judge at age 23. The the youngest in the you know state. What type of judge? General Sessions, right? Uh, they didn't have a – what today would be a General Sessions judge, yeah. Uh, one of his cousins, I think a William Kennedy or an Anderson Kennedy, was on the county commission, and they needed a judge, and so he became the judge. He got in a whole bunch of trouble with my mother when my uncle Granville Ridley was arrested one night doing 75 through the middle <laughs> of Columbia – in his big black Cadillac, and I don't think he was warm and fuzzy with the policeman, you know, and uh, but that didn't matter to Mama. Uncle Granville was in jail. It was a rough start, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a judge at 23 years old, how long did he hold that position? Not very long. Uh, you know, he uh, ended up practicing law in Columbia with uh, Millard Queener and Robin Courtney, Queener, Courtney, and Kennedy. They had sort of, you know, the really established Mr. Queener uh, was, of course, Lucille Queener's, Courtney's uh, father, very respected, established practice. He took in Daddy and, and his son-in-law, uh, and then Daddy became district attorney and then later the editor and publisher of the paper in 65 when Granddaddy died. Did he have any experience in news prior to 1965 when he took it over? Other, other than he and Daddy... Granddaddy, John Finney, just uh, after Grandmama died in 62, we moved in with Granddaddy. We and all lived in he and Daddy would jawbone every night about something. <laughs> that uh, is some, one of my major memories. And the funniest, thing, the funniest thing is we got a, of course, Daddy was a big Vanderbilt fan. His father, having gone to Vanderbilt, uh, being extremely well-educated on the frontier and, and an intellectual. Um, and, uh, of course, Granddaddy, John W. Finney, went to UT. Well, in 64, RCA, here comes the world of color, and granddaddy, John W. Finney, gets one of the first color televisions in Murray County, and we put it there in the living room like a beautiful piece of furniture, you know, and the UT Vanderbilt game was going to be televised, and of course, this was great excitement, and so my grandfather declared that if if UT lost, he would move to Hohenwald. Well, hell, they lost, <laughs> and Jerry Colley and Daddy bought him a one-way bus ticket to Hohenwald. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that, but I don't doubt it for an instant. <laughs> um, your father became a major advocate of the state's sunshine law. That was his big deal. I explain his philosophy on that. Sister, you know this one better. Well, he just felt that transparency in government was paramount and it was the responsibility of the pre and he was involved in politics long before he became a newspaper i mean in, in public policy i don't he wasn't a politician but he he really really cared about all that and he felt that the misdeeds of those in power it was the responsibility of the fourth estate the newspaper folk to bring to light the the misdeeds of the or, or in the good deeds of those in power. And uh, he just felt that there was a, sometimes a disconnect between what was really going on and what was being heard and said, and that it was imperative that that not. And public records was part of it, part of this, pub, open meetings, public records. He felt that that was imperative, and he worked so hard to see that that was... He worked on this um, statewide commission, the Law Revision Commission, and I believe it was 74. You, you may have all that in your— I, I think that's right. Uh, and he shepherded. He, he sort of led this 
idea and shepherd it through the legislature prior to this committees could meet with behind closed doors yeah yes. laws secret, could be passed secret deal smoke fill rooms and and um he was against all that and the sunshine law was not totally effective but was 90 percent right. unfortunately it still yeah, is 90 percent they've yeah. hammered away at, the, yeah, at well, what was the original every year some council member some governor some mayor wants their, their little exception some police chief wants their little exception and daddy spent most of his time you know just plugging and stopping those chinks in the armor right know. he wrote prolifically in the newspaper uh, on that subject and many others he wrote a weekly piece called the barrister's bit for many years what was the purpose of his writing that column my mother invented that, and she knew that Daddy had a voice that would be heard, and she invented the moniker for it, and she knew what John W. and James I., what their ability to be heard, what the significance of that had been. And uh, so she cooked that up, and he wrote it, and the rest is history. I, I think it's important in start to, to understand that Mother was at sort she of was the, the heart one behind of this the story. Sure. She was at the heart of all, and she really understood through her life's experience what a, what the media could mean to a community. Yeah, and You can't understand any of this without Mama. Yeah. So it's her father and grandfather who were the newspaper men yeah. for generations. And her husband she that she believed in, that. you know, hands down and all she, day. She had, she had her own office at the paper, and she was there every day. This is, I think, a wonderful illustration of this. No less than the former director of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government said this of her. This is a quote. She was the warm, gracious heart of every situation, whether in the tension and turmoil of a busy newsroom or in the role of a kind, great lady at which she was unmatched. Right on. Right on. Tell, tell us a little bit more about her. She sounds like she's the oh. glue for what the What can you say? Steel Magnolia. I mean, he, yes. he got it. You know, um, Steel Magnolia. We are, we are, I will share that we're on the one-year anniversary of her death. And um, I, she's, and George, I've never, she, there was never anybody like her. Not only was she smart, capable, gracious, kind, but she, you know, she could shove cold steel. And Mama was hot. I mean, you look at pictures of her when she was 50. <laughs> I mean, she was gorgeous and people used to come up to me and mama all the time here i was 20 and she's 50 and daddy's standing there and people would come up and go oh well honey how are you and your sister doing and daddy would just you know rah, rah, rah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but but daddy was the first person to tell you that she was the prettiest girl in murray county and he just i mean and he loved to say that that he you, that he you uh, never understood how he ever got a date with her. You, it's hard. It's hard to think of your mama that way. Only the last five years, when I look at those old pictures, you know, and you're just going, "Holy moly!" <laughs> uh, you, your father passed away not all that long ago. No, the, we lost him one after the other, and I, I don't think that there's any accident there. I think they were a team. Very much so. Letters of condolence came in from all over the country. Former Vice President Al Gore wrote. Sam Kennedy was a good family friend and a strong progressive community and state leader. Tennessee was fortunate to have Sam, both as an outstanding journalist and as a public servant, and he will be missed by all of us who knew him. As his children, what do you see as your father's greatest legacy? Kindness, intellect, gentleness. And, to and tolerance, right? I mean, tolerance. He, he, he never got mad, never talked ill of anybody else. He was not the exuberant person john w finney was quiet thoughtful intellectual uh he like i said 
uh, we've been in the media business all these years. He wouldn't make a sales call. He he wouldn't go out. He would not. He was not going to ask anybody for money. He just wasn't going to do it. I, and I mean, thank goodness for mother. Yeah, she mama. Would now, do mama, it. mama would sell you. You know, she'd sell you anything. You know, <laughs> while you're standing there chatting, she'd sell it to you. He wouldn't do it. Both your great-grandfather James I and grandfather John Wesley are remembered and memorialized in the Tennessee Newspaper Hall of Fame, alongside the likes of Governor William G. Brownlow and Ida B. Wells. I suspect that your father will join them before long. And I thought he was already list. there. I didn't know Elizabeth told us. Uh, yeah. Two years, is he can't be nominated until I, May I of would, this year. I would say that will happen in short order, yeah. Well, your family history is an interesting one. I appreciate and thank that you both... Uh, came in and joined us on History's Hook to tell us your story. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Tom, fun. Thank you. I would like to end the show with a quote from Sam Kennedy. Uh, this is from a column that he wrote in his uh, The Barrister's Bit from 1980. He wrote, I try to put into proper perspective all the various strident viewpoints that pervade the land and come up with some logical conclusions based on reason rather than emotion. We have become a nation motivated and moved by the rabble rather than one that sits down to quiet study of problems with a view toward reaching national consensus of action and direction. But, that was a, excuse me. That was a prescient quote that resonates as much today as it did when he wrote it some 40 years ago. And that was mom and dad, but at the same time in 1980, they got in the line at Studio 54 in New York. The bouncers picked them from the line. They partied in there all night long. My mother came home and said, oh, it was so much fun, Del, but what were all those, that white powder on the trays those people were carrying around? <laughs> that was Daddy, too. Well, the, the version of that story that I always heard was that uh, they said to Mother, would you like to go in the room with the Coke? And she said, I don't much like Coca-Cola. My children do. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. They were there, and she rode the slide from the first floor to the second floor, and Daddy wouldn't get on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. Thank you to our engineer, Marty Verhoff. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Well, leave, leave all you can in because that's a good tale right there. <laughs>